Workers' Comp Matters, the podcast dedicated to the laws, the landmark cases, and the people that make up the diverse world of workers' compensation. Here are your hosts, Judd and Alan Pierce. Well, hello, everybody. This is Alan Pierce here along with Judson Pierce for another edition of Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. As a matter of just coincidence, we are recording this program on April 20th, and that uh, date, 420, may uh, cause a couple of chuckles. We want to avoid uh, making too much light of uh, the subject matter today, but it is the uh, responsibility of workers' comp insurance companies to either pay or reimburse injured workers for the utilization of medical marijuana as a treatment modality for uh, pain as a result of uh, work injuries. And we are pleased to have a guest who recently successfully argued a case involving this precise issue before the Commonwealth Court in Pennsylvania. Jennifer Dana Kaufman is our guest. And Judd, tell us a little bit about uh, Jennifer. Absolutely. Uh, Jennifer graduated from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law in 1997, received her BA from the George Washington University in 1994, and she has been licensed to practice law in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania since 1997, is also licensed in New Jersey. She's an active member of the Philadelphia Montgomery County Bar Associations and Workers' Comp Sections, and has been a member of the Philadelphia Bar Association's Marijuana and Hemp Law Committee since its inception. She's also been accredited by the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs as a veterans benefits attorney. And I had the pleasure of meeting you, I think it was a week or so ago, uh, at a conference, a national conference, and you spoke and... uh, It was uh, just remarkable hearing you because you and I are basically the same age. I graduated college in 94, graduated law school in 97. And boy, I just am looking up to your career and marveling at especially the the recent uh, success you had. Um, So congratulations. And it's a pleasure to welcome you on on this program, Jen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and it's a pleasure to see you again. Okay, Jennifer, and again, to give you a little bit more of a plug, you practice out of the Kaufman Workers' Compensation Law Firm in Abington, Pennsylvania? Yes, it's my own firm. I've been on my own about five years. Okay, you just recently were successful in a case uh, at the appellate level in Pennsylvania. Uh, Why don't you just give us a quick overview of what that issue is before we delve into uh, the substance behind the controversy that is evolving in all 50 states regarding the use of medical marijuana in the workers' comp setting? Certainly. So my client uh, was injured back way back to the 1970s. He had had three failed back surgeries. He was left with very chronic low back pain into his legs. There were times he would have tremors as a result of his injuries. And for years, he had been maintained on various narcotics, Vicodin, Percocet, and eventually OxyContin. He became addicted to OxyContin. It had a pretty deleterious effect on him mentally and socially. And then at the request of his treating doctor, he was suggested for uh, medical marijuana shortly after it was legalized here in Pennsylvania. And with the help of his doctor, and probably took him about a year and a half, he was able to completely wean himself off of the OxyContin and the diazepam after being on these medications for several decades. He had equal or better pain relief, and it actually returned some quality of life to him in terms of his mental state, his ability to go out. Uh, As I'm sure you're all aware, when people are on things like OxyContin, it has a very 
negative effect on people's personalities, their interpersonal and their family. And of course, that all mushrooms and it's a pretty bad uh, negative feedback loop. Uh, so I had requested the workers' comp carrier, and his case is an old case where the medical is still open, even though he had settled the indemnity years ago. And I had requested the carrier, major carrier, to reimburse, and they would not, and hence litigation commenced to get him reimbursed. He was using about $300 a month of medical marijuana versus a very considerable amount they were paying for OxyContin, diazepam, at least here in Pennsylvania, if you're on those things, I believe you have to get drug tested two or three times a year. So that costs money. And he wasn't really gaining anything in terms of his quality of life while taking those medications. And it was interesting in his case because it was the carrier who actually prompted the switch to OxyContin because it was cheaper and it was, hey, it's a time-release pill. You just have to take it so many times a day. But they absolutely would not pay to reimburse him given the fear, primarily the fear of federal law. I've had other cases where the Pennsylvania statute came into play. In this case, it really didn't until much later down the road. So what did the workers' comp judge do with your claim, and and, and how did it get to the uh, court where you just recently had some success? So what actually happened was that when I made the request, I filed a petition to have him reimbursed, and the carrier also submitted the case to what we call utilization review. This is where an outside medical reviewer decides if the treatment is reasonable and necessary, and it came back reasonable and necessary, and they did not appeal it. I'm not sure why. But it was not appealed. So I had a final unappealed utilization review finding this treatment reasonable and necessary. And Pennsylvania law says you shall pay. It's not discretionary. And then that's where we really got into the arguments before the judge as far as whether federal preemption and the like. So my client testified twice. It did actually go through two judges because one retired. And the judge ultimately concluded that it was He couldn't really rule on the reasonable necessity nature, but he concluded it would violate federal law if he were to allow this, and that they would not put the carrier in a position where they could be prosecuted, which is a pretty standard refrain in these types of cases. I took that to the Pennsylvania Appeal Board, who essentially said they didn't feel they were smart enough or well-versed enough in federal law to make the determination that they're a a Pennsylvania administrative agency and therefore they are not qualified to weigh in on federal law. And I believe the cases out of Minnesota that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, there was a similar reasoning by their equivalent of the appeal board. And then I took that to the uh, PA Commonwealth Court where uh, it was argued in bonk. So before I believe five or seven of the nine justices, it was heard with another case that was not mine, sort of same issues, and took about a year and a half. And then on uh, St. Patrick's Day, we got the favorable decision from Commonwealth Court. All right. And just for our, uh, our, our listeners who might be interested, uh, could you give us a caption of the case so uh, they could find it? It's uh, Fegley, F-E-G-L-E-Y. It's 680 Pennsylvania CD. 2021. My client's name was Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-Z, but because he passed away during the pendency of the litigation, it changed to Fagley versus Firestone Tire and Rubber, in parentheses, W-C-A-B. There's not an eighth third site yet, but I presume there will be. 
Just bring it back uh, to the basics for us, if you wouldn't mind. What is medical marijuana? Specifically, there's a lot of talk about CBD. There are some stores that sell CBD oil or whatnot, and then there's the cannabis. Can you break it down for the for our listeners generally? Sure. So there's nothing magical about medical marijuana. Uh, it's marijuana as we think of it, and it's also been processed into other forms. The main thing that makes marijuana medical is that a state has licensed the sale of it through a dispensary system. So if you buy an eighth of flour in a Pennsylvania dispensary or any dispensary, that's the same type of flour you would buy in a recreational state or if you're old-fashioned and off the street or whatever. There's nothing magical about that. The other part of medical marijuana is the formulations. They have been able to extract the THC, which is the component that gets you high and also has medicinal properties. And at times the CBD as well, because marijuana has both, they're both naturally occurring, and formulate that into tinctures, salves, concentrates. And the concentrates are like anywhere from the consistency of butter to something really hard that they call shatter because it will shatter and that can be inhaled. There's also pre-filled cartridges that are sold here in Pennsylvania with the liquids. A popular one is something called RSO, Rick Simpson oil which is a very pure, highly processed strain where you either put it under your tongue, a couple of drops, or take a capsule. So medical marijuana is a pretty broad thing. We don't do edibles in Pennsylvania. Some states do. But ultimately, it's what you think of as marijuana plus some additional um, extracts and formulations. And, and what makes it medical is the intent that you, you got a card legally through your state and you're following the state's procedures and a doctor has properly recommended you for it. And as long as you jump through those hoops, it's medical marijuana and it is legal, I think, in 38 or 39 states at this point. Now, you know, from reading some of your materials that you presented um, at this uh, seminar last week, you broke down the uh, categories of uh, CBD and THC. Now, THC is what I think most of us are familiar with is the, the part of the cannabis, marijuana, or a hemp plant that gets you high, whatever that means to you, or has some psychotropic properties. CBD, which we can see even in non-marijuana states being sold legally, is, is somewhat different. And is, is it the CBD that is the analgesic or pain-relieving uh, substance? Not necessarily. There's a, th a bunch of cannabinoids that are contained in the cannabis plant. The cannabis plant runs the gamut from hemp to medical marijuana. And I think the example I like to use is with peppers. If you think of the range between a bell pepper and a super hot ghost pepper, they're still peppers. And the same thing with cannabis, hemp and marijuana are still cannabis. Hemp is grown for the CBD and for industrial purposes. And CBD has a variety of different uses, both pain relief, uh, anti-inflammatory and the like. And then THC is less than 0.3%. It's generally negligible trace amounts in something that's called hemp. But when it's called marijuana, the THC is above that limit. And usually there is some level of CBD still in there. There's a bunch of cannabinoids beyond just CBD, CBG, CBH, CBC. And all these are believed to have specific properties. As far as, yeah, and CBD is sold over the counter as long as it meets those requirements of under 0.3% THC that's not sold in dispensaries. 
However, their products in the dispensaries may have a certain amount of CBD. For the properties it has, a lot of people believe in what's called the entourage effect, that it's the combination of the different cannabinoids that'll produce the desired effect or a full spectrum of different substances. And for some people, it's actually the THC, not the CBD. I think CBD is generally beneficial to most people and primates and even animals. Uh, but for certain conditions like PTSD, it's actually the THC for whatever medical reason that provides the relief, more so than the CBD component. And obviously dispensaries, it runs the gamut, the THC products, how much CBD they also place in it. But you're not going to generally find a pure CBD product at a dispensary because you don't you don't need to go to the trouble of getting a card and going to a dispensary to obtain that. It's pretty readily available at various locations. Why don't we uh, take a short break for a word from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Attorney Jen Kaufman. Be back to Mara's case is the number one law practice management solution tailor-made for workers' compensation firms. Streamline your practice with Mara's case's easy-to-use all-in-one platform. You're empowered to breeze through case and document management, workers' compensation forms, e-filing, calendaring, and invoicing. Learn how Mara's Case can increase your firm's efficiency today. Visit Mara'sCase.com. That's M-E-R-U-S-C-A-S-E.com. Be the best resource you can for your Spanish-speaking clients with the Spanish Group's Legal Translation Service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same-day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured, and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. And we're back. Jennifer, could you tell us whether or not a direct pay scenario exists in any of our states, or if uh, most of the states that have allowed it are just following the reimbursement rule? Uh, There are five states that do allow for reimbursement, and I believe for all of them it is reimbursement, not direct pay, and that's because of the federal law. Um, There is one state, New Mexico, which has made marijuana part of their fee schedule. However, I do believe it's still a reimbursement model. As long as it's still a Schedule 1, I think that would be hold true uh, just to not run afoul of the Controlled Substances Act at this time. Jennifer, about how many states now allow for the use or licensing of dispensaries for medical marijuana? I think it's 39 plus Puerto Rico, plus Guam, plus Washington, D.C. So it's it's very good. Now, some have different, some are CBD only where they don't get into the THC products, but it's the great majority that permit it. Now, some of the states, even though they technically are medical marijuana states, they may not have an active program running yet due to some court challenges and other issues that have arisen. So like, I'm not positive, like, for example, Mississippi ever got their medical marijuana program up and running after they voted for it. And even in New Jersey, there's a lot of pushback from different counties. I mean, when New Jersey's medical marijuana program was running, there were literally five dispensaries for the whole state, which I probably have five within five miles of my house. So <laughs> you know, different states have different levels of how robust their programs are and what conditions are covered. Some states are very narrow. 
They only want to deal with catastrophic diseases or illnesses, like certainly people dying of cancer or AIDS or things. I don't think there's a lot of dispute. But for example, Pennsylvania, we did not start as a state that covered anxiety. Now we do. And that's a pretty vague diagnosis, to say the least. And it's obviously a pretty subjective one most of the time. So all medical marijuana states are not the same in terms of how robust and how accessible their programs are. You um, talk about a lot of action, legal action happening in the Northeast corridor of this country. What, what, what do you make any sense of that or why this area of the country? Do we have all this case law coming down, New Hampshire, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania? It's interesting. And I think these are, other than the far West Coast, these were some of the first states to uh, permit medical marijuana. And the majority of those states have moved on to adult use as well. I think it's partly just the uh, legal history. I mean, we, we don't do things by uh, vote. You know, in other states, they'll put things to a proposition and they let the people decide. That's not really how the Eastern United States works very much. We know, our legislators just had to get the support they needed. They didn't need to get the populace's support to run these programs. And I think it's just a matter of evolution that we're a little further along in terms of having medical marijuana. I mean, Pennsylvania was sort of middle of the pack. We were far from the first. We're a follower state, but we're usually an early follower state. So, I, and it's and I think it's also just the general, I guess, more liberal ideologies that tend to. As a whole, the states tend to be a little more progressive and liberal on these issues. And even the more conservative parts, like I would not consider a Pennsylvania Republican the same as all other Republicans. So I, I, so I think it's partly just the culture and the history of the East Coast and sort of some of the colonial roots in terms of some of the independence and the freedom. So I do think it, some of that does come into play without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So Je- Jennifer, before we take another short break, help me out here. Let's say I am practicing law in one of the states which allows the insurer to reimburse my client for the purchase of marijuana for analgesic purposes. What do I need to do? What does my client need to do? What are the conditions for which this is reimbursable? And what are the steps that need to be taken? For example, can my client just go into a dispensary for adult use and pick it up or... Tell us the uh, rules that we have to play by. So I think in most states that are medical, you need to get a recommendation from a doctor who is licensed by that state to recommend marijuana. Because of the federal law, it's not a prescription, it's a recommendation. So first and foremost, you know, your client needs to get properly certified in the state where their workers' comp claim is and hopefully where they live as well for a recognized condition under your state. By certified, you mean get a card? Yes, So you go to a doctor, you have to go to a doctor, they meet with you, they look at medical records, they make sure that the condition you're suffering from is an approved condition in that state, and that you appear that you would benefit from it. It's not a real high bar, but there is a bar. And then once that happens and you're approved, your certification, at least in Pennsylvania, will say what condition you were certified for, which is potentially important because if my client gets certified because they're anxious and then they're using marijuana now say, to treat a foot injury, I think there becomes a causal question. So from the claimant's perspective, I want my client to be sure they're certified for the correct diagnosis, to keep receipts. And it's actually easy to get receipts if you don't keep them. And then I, as a practitioner, want to make sure that everything lines up on the workers' comp side. I mean, these are going to be cases that are already accepted. 
by, I mean, I could see an exception, but generally speaking, there's an acceptance document. And you want to make sure the acceptance document lists what the marijuana was prescribed or recommended for. So if my client, say, for example, my state has a, a neuropathy, say they have low back radiculopathy, and that's what they're certified for, I want to make sure that my NCP or my acceptance document says radiculopathy or something other than lumbar strain. Here in Pennsylvania, there's a habit to call an injury the uh, least significant thing you can call an injury. And it, even for people who've had back surgeries, they call it a strain and they could be on comp for 10 years and no one's ever dealt with the description of injury because it was never an issue. Everything's just been paid for. They're legitimately injured. Well, I, I need to make sure that my documents legally match up because I would think strain would not necessarily be a convincing enough injury to justify medical marijuana, at least at this point in the game. So I want to make sure that matches up and get it corrected if necessary, which in many cases, they can't really contest it. There's an IME out there that gives you the injuries you want, but you want to make sure your ducks are in a row beforehand as to not prolong the process and make sure also that your client has a doctor that they're checking in with periodically. It doesn't even have to be the doctor who recommended medical marijuana who can document the benefit. And what I personally do is I get the receipts together, I get a brief narrative from the treating doctor, and I send it to the carrier requesting reimbursement. Now, in Pennsylvania, there, because of the case that came down, the court said that it must be reimbursed if it is reasonable and necessary, which gives two options for me as a practitioner. I can force the employer to file a utilization review, and if they don't, within a certain time, they've waived their right. And then it is presumptively reasonable and necessary, or I can file my own. I have the right. It's a little more difficult. But I, I want to be able to make sure no matter what I can do a showing of reasonable and necessary. And, and that can be shown based on overall improvement in condition that's documented. It could be shown they're taking less medication, other medications or treatments. It can also, in Pennsylvania, one of the accepted Reasons for writing medical marijuana is opiate reduction and elimination. So I could also, in a case, show that they're using less opiates, that this is sort of a rehab of sorts. But I, I, I want to make sure that is all presented as clearly and simply. And the other thing I like is for my client to be consistent in wanting to keep using it, because there is a cost. And $300 is a lot of money if you're on a fixed income, and it's not always there. And that they have some predictability that I can say to the adjuster, you're looking at $200 a month, $250 a month. They're using flour, they're using shatter, whatever it may be. But just like anything else, you, you know, if you're saying this is helping and this works, it, it helps if you can show that the, there's a consistent treatment program. I understand dispensaries don't always have the same exact strain every time you go, but at the same token, they're all rather similar. But, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is that there's a trial and error period in the middle, I mean, in the beginning, till somebody finds the right dosage and the right strain. You know, most qualified pharmacists start on the lowest microdose, basically that being the lowest effective dose. Uh, so there, it may take someone a couple months till you can show that predictability to the carrier while they decide, you know what, I don't like flour, I'd rather use RSO oil, or I found this is different product that really is what makes the difference. And that's fairly normal. So it's really working together with your client and also doing the legal stuff that's necessary behind the scenes so that as soon as they're ready to go, you're ready to go.
That's great. Uh, why don't we take our last break for uh, this podcast, and we'll be right back with Attorney Jen Kaufman. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process, but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is, and that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. All right, we're back. And uh, Jennifer, I want to maybe focus a little more on what we've continually hear about federal issues that preclude the ability of insurers to pay for or even reimburse. Tell us what it is about medical marijuana as a substance or a drug that is classified and uh, what this means to the states. So marijuana is still a Schedule One drug and is still technically federally illegal, even though it is legal at a state level. And the reason it's allowed to be legal at a state level is it's gone through several different names, but the Rohrabacher Amendment to the Farm Bill, and that's, I believe it's Section 537. And this rider has been in it for over a decade, and every time an appropriations bill is passed, it is there. And essentially that says that the, the federal Department of Justice will not use any funds to go after states with legitimate medical marijuana programs. They will not prosecute. If you're complying with your state's law, they're not going to go after you. Now, just because you have a federal, a state dispensary, obviously, if there's a legal activity that's outside of the dispensary, they will pursue that. And that protection, I don't believe, actually extends to adult use. So that is what has allowed these programs to exist. And previously, there have been some, every DA sort of, well, not DA, um, attorney general weighs in on that issue from time to time. But that's what allows it. But even with that, that's not does not override the Controlled Substances Act. And marijuana is still a controlled substance, Schedule 1, illegal, no benefit. You're going to die if you take it sort of thing. So as long as the Controlled Substances Act is in its present form, that's not going to change. Now, you can argue whether it's a meaningless law at this point, akin to laws like you can't ride your bike on Wednesdays in the state of Colorado unless you're wearing a polka dot tie, you know, that kind of law. And debatably, we're going that direction. But until that, till the marijuana is either reclassified or declassified, technically this is still out there. And it's sort of been the best defense employers and carriers have had to reimbursing is the fear of the federal government. 
Looking towards the future, um, I know that I've been reading about psychotropic uh, medications such as uh, like you get from mushrooms. Do you see that as the sort of next frontier that uh, we might be dealing with? I think it's certainly possible, uh, starting in the same types of states in terms of places like Oregon and Colorado. I'm not sure I'll see that in my lifetime, but I think at this point, the, the amount of study that's been done on that is even less than the limited study on marijuana. But there are people who swear by it. Uh, I'm aware of that as being a frontier. And then perhaps for certain, especially psychological conditions, it could be beneficial. I think most people's view of psychedelic mushrooms is very similar to your grandparents' view of marijuana. Rightfully or wrongfully, I can't answer that. I don't know enough about it, but I do find it potentially a very interesting area. But I don't think in my lifetime, especially in a workers' comp setting, I'm going to have to worry about that. <laughs> Interesting. No, and I think, I think we could all agree if the particular substance that is providing the beneficial medical effect, such as CBD, were not associated with this long history of reefer madness and smoking weed and getting high, if we were really looking at the chemical as it acts on the central nervous system of the brain and provides relief, and it were in a pill form or a, a topical form, we probably wouldn't be having this issue. But because it is contained in a naturally occurring plant that just happens to produce something that also gets somebody high or, you know, alters their, their consciousness or is an intoxicant. Mm. We, we have an issue. We could get into much more of the intoxication defense and the use of medical marijuana in the workplace and drug tests and mandatory drug tests and denial of benefits because of uh, THC in your system. That would be another show or a couple of shows. In fact, we've done a, a show on intoxication and, and marijuana. If somebody wants to learn more about your particular case or the research that you have done, how could they contact you? They can reach me there at my website, which is kaufmanworkerscomp.com or my email, jennifer, J-E-N-I-F-E-R at kaufman, K-A-U-F like Frank, M-A-N, workerscomp.com or call. I'm in the office every day. We're open. 267-626-2973. And that's Jennifer with one N. So one you in. really need to buy a consonant if I could uh, <laughs> if I could play a, Vanna White. A Scrabble. A Scrabble. <laughs> whatever. I don't know. Well, Jennifer, again, it was a pleasure having you on today. Uh, your information is topical, to say the least, given uh, today is April 20th. Thank you, Thank you both, Alan and Judd, for having me today. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, 420. So we circle back to that uh, three-digit uh, code where we don't really know the origins of, but it's there. For Alan, this is Judd Pierce. Thank you again, Jennifer. And uh, remember, make it a day that matters. 